0: With Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP
1: welcome to the show I'm Bill Newman and I'm Buzz Eisenberg and in the front on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette Dateline East Hampton wrist quote "It's time to leave council longest serving counsellor won't seek re-election when his fourteenth term ends in December." so I went to my technologically uh, compromised self, and got a hold of Dan Riss this morning to see if he could join us, and I am so pleased that he is. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to start by asking you about the most important aspect of our relationship, which is when we, and this is by way of disclosure to our listeners, of course, uh, which is our time together on the Smith College men's softball team. So by way of disclosure, just tell tell our listeners how great we were. <laughs>
2: Well, we had the best pitcher in the league. His name was Newman. I don't know if you know this guy. But he, <laughs> yeah, with an ERA he was of about 1,000. <laughs> well, you know, when you play slow pitch softball, it's pretty easy to hit. And uh, I was having a debate with my friend Omar Gomez, who's the president of the council, the other day. And I said, when I played slow pitch, I could hit the ball anywhere because he was very angry at the, you know, how in baseball. They uh, put all the players on one side because of analytics. You know, the guy always hits it over there. He says, they pay $13 million to these guys. They should be able to hit it anywhere. They said, well, if it's slow pitch, you can hit it anywhere. (laughs) That was one of the best times of my life, I have to admit it. I would would rush to get to a game if I was working or anything because it was so important to me to be there.
1: It was great hanging out on the bench, and I was trying to remember this morning about when we were talking politics—if there was something we ever agreed on—and I can't quite remember. But um, it was a lively time, both. Maybe the quality of your pitching.
2: I think we only disagree on a couple things, and most of that was <laughs> procedure. As you know, you're a lawyer, and and, and lawyers know everything. So, you know, it's hard to debate you. Okay, we're gonna. I, uh, I remember, didn't you litigate in front of the Supreme Court? It made you a big deal in Hampshire County. I think I recall that. Was
3: that you?
1: Uh, the Supreme Judicial Court. Yes, I think that was one of our one of our one of our. Uh, spirited debates, which I always appreciated. Dan, I'd really like to ask you a couple of things about your service on the council and in particular about the city, which when you began your service was a town of East Hampton. And what I was reflecting on this morning when I saw this. And by the way, I want to congratulate you for these years and years of service, the many, many elections that you've won, the confidence that is reposed in you by your fellow councillors, the respect that you have across the city of East Hampton. So congratulations on on all of that. Um, well, East Hampton, thank
2: you very much. That feels good.
1: East Hampton's changed during your time. And I think in some ways- Oh my uh, God, so much- and I think you've changed along in both. It, it's been kind of a path that both you and the city have been on. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. And I'd appreciate your reflections.
2: Well, gosh, have I changed. I've changed a lot because one of the things I've noticed on the council is that you have to listen. And when you listen, it affects you. I always tell people, for one thing, I don't like this remote uh, it's great to get more access to people, but when I see a hundred people in our in our chambers and they're all speaking passionately about a subject, it affects you as a counselor. So you listen. you listen greatly to what is being said and a lot of things changed my mind. and I think I was rather stubborn at the beginning, uh, believing that you know I felt comfortable in in my path towards some whatever the issue is, but then when I listen to the people, when I listen to the passions of people and I do a little research, it's amazing. And the one thing that's very important, I think it's true of most local politicians, we don't judge issues based on an ideology, if I'm a Democrat or Republican or whatever. We judge the issue based on its merits. What is it before me? And the main reason I ran for office was because I didn't like that town meeting would have one, meet- two meetings a year dealing with millions of dollars in appropriations. And I thought financial oversight was so important. Where well, we have two council meetings a month and we put out a lot of money. We just did appropriations for hundreds of thousands of dollars for the DPW, for instance. I wanted to guard the money. I wanted to be involved with where the money goes because that's the main reason we exist. What the taxpayers want us to do is make sure the money's being spent properly, and that's the oversight of the council. And the, on the finance committee, which I always wanted to be on, and I got on, I don't even know, 15 years ago, and became its chair, it was important to me that oversight, because so way back when, we, when I decided to run, when I was one of the subjects I brought up a lot, we need to have more oversight of, and fiscal responsibility.
1: We're speaking I don't
2: with. That answered your question.
1: <laughs> well, it, it does in part, but I also think, and you feel free to disagree. Uh, it seems to me that the city of East Hampton used to be, in particular as a town, pretty conservative, and it has changed. I think politically to be pretty progressive, and
2: I would totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And I think there's an old guard, we talk about an old guard that exists in the city. And with all the new people coming in, it's gonna become much more progressive.
1: Well, I also think that you in some ways really uh epitomize the the change in East Hampton. And I think that one thing that you have really called for is unity among people. We shouldn't have that kind of old Northampton no-ho versus Hamp, which I hate divide. And it's kind of reflected in some ways in the politics of East Hampton. But you came out a, in support of, for example, the Safe City Ordinance and in protection of uh, immigrants and with regard to police reform. You were uh, a vote in favor of all those progressive uh, uh, resolutions and ordinances before the council, um, which I'm not sure that 20, how many years has this been? <laughs> You've been there forever, as far as I can remember. Um, uh when you started i'm not sure i'm not sure most of the city would have supported it or you but there you were really one of the leaders of the city in supporting those progressing progressive measures and i'm wondering if you would you would agree with that
2: i disagree in the sense that way back when i started those issues weren't topics of discussion i think if they came up then i would be in favor i've always said to people why did you move to, you know, I moved here to get a job at Smith College in 1979. The reason for that I was so happy to live here is I was going to raise my children in a very progressive area. And I've always said they've grown up without a hint, not a hint of racism or discrimination in their bones. Whereas I have a lot of family members, unfortunately, that have other, you know, Let's just say they're a little rather conservative. My kids don't look at anyone in the wrong, the wrong way. They are not. I'm so proud of that. So I think back when we started, if those issues came up, I would disagree that I wouldn't give the same kind of effort to them. And just to be clear, I think we disagreed on the Safe Cities ordinance. And my issue with that wasn't about the ordinance itself, was that whether... I've always been a process person, and whether we could actually write an ordinance that that dealt with policy that was under the executive branch. So a lot of what I do on the council has to do with process and the proper role of each of the bodies, the legislative body, the executive branch. Is it not the executive branch's decision how to direct the police and policy, for instance, et cetera? But I agreed with them. the spirit of it. Of course we wanted to have a safe city. And I came around to it because, again, I listen to people. I am not so stubborn as to not realize that process should be the overriding reason to vote no against something. I voted yes because it was the right thing to do. And I, I feel that way. And I'm kind of, I would like to say that I'm probably moderate in my opinions. I like to listen to both sides of an issue. Um I'm fairly progressive on you know white supremacy and racism, of course I am. and uh, but I, I kind of support our police department, for instance, because I believe they do a good job, and they do support um, accountability, and I think we should have our police be accountable. I think we should treat them as human beings and also realize that we have a lot of crime and all our guns out there, and we're going to need our police well, our police to do the job. That they've been hired to do the courage they have to run into gunfire um but you know we still have to hold them accountable and i believe the reform act of the state legislature does that and i fully support that and they do too so i'm kind of I'm, i think i'm kind of moderate but i'm very progressive when it comes to issues regarding racism and white supremacy i've always been that way they just haven't been as that's what the whole world has changed, and I think media has a lot to do with that, that we're able to see things happening in other parts of the country and react to them. So well, I think uh, I think the press has been very good that way, getting us information.
1: Dean I want you to know we are so, going to uh, actually be focusing with uh, city councilors uh, on this new show, Talk the Talk. We began that on my show about a year ago with Northampton City Councilors, and we're really looking forward to have Councilors from East Hampton, Northampton, Amherst, Greenfield on the show on a regular basis. And so we look forward to having you back. Before you go today, I would love to ask you one more question. And we look forward to having you back on the show during your time on the Council and thereafter as well. In today's Gazette, it says, an emotional risk shared his decision with fellow Councilors at the close of Wednesday's meeting. December 31st will mark his last day in office when his 14th term expires. City Council President Omar Gomez acknowledged how difficult it must have been for Risk to announce his retirement after so many years. In a statement to the Gazette, Gomez commended Risk's professionalism, honesty, and dedication to service to the community. This, uh, this is a hard decision for you in some ways?
2: It is, because I believe that... Um, I still have more to give to the council and to the city. But I also believe that I've had a need to go back to what I do best, and that's with my family. Council isn't easy. It has its ups and downs. And when you get older, you you allow stress to build, and it's all self-inflicted stress. And I, I just don't want to deal with that anymore in a sense of, having to deal with the stress of, you know, politics, et cetera. On the other hand, I, I love what I told them the other night. I miss the debates we have, which are very good on, on where there's no contention. There's just debate over. We were talking about charter changes the other night, and I, I would love doing that kind of thing and debating uh, the charter and, and uh, legislation, etc But, you know, it's just that there's a younger generation out there, and I ought to make room for them. Uh, that's one of the things I thought of. But I had decided two years ago that this would be my last term. Oh, by the way, that's wrong. It's not the 14th term. It's the end of my 13th term.
1: Okay. We're going to make that's... the press—we're going to make them pay for that mistake. Just just 13, not 14 terms. Hey, Dan Rist, I appreciate your time this morning. We really appreciate your service, and I look back. I look forward to having you back on the show. We do.
2: Okay. well, thank you, sir.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be right back. We'll be talking with former State Senate President Stan Rosenberg right after this.
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the valley, we're talking about it.
4: We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of the white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists and it's not an issue that's going away easily.
0: 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the valley. We are WHMP. Business West announces the 2023 Difference Makers. This year's honorees include Nathan Costa of the Springfield Thunderbirds, Stephen and Gene Graham of Toner Plastics Group, and Helix Human Services. Read their inspiring stories at businesswest.com. Join Business West on April 27th at the Log Cabin and celebrate the Difference Makers. Network with hundreds of business and civic leaders. The 2023 Difference Makers, sponsored by Burkhart Pizzinelli PC, the Royal Law Firm, Tommy Car Auto Group, and Westfield Bank. Celebrate the Business West Difference Makers, April 27th at the log cabin
5: That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night Ugh. the creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs well if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner and the creaking noise isn't the stairs and it's your knee Maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow, and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And we're back. We have with us on the line former State Senate President Stan Rosenberg. And Stan, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate you taking the time. We have spent a lot of time this week reflecting on the service of uh, our former congressman, former state senator, four time, elect- 40 years as an elected official, John Over. I met you and John Olver at the same time for the first time. Uh, many, many years ago, you worked for John Olver. I'd appreciate your reflections on his passing.
3: Well, it's going to take you at least a month to cover John because he had just the most amazing, far reaching uh, political career. And uh, there's this huge group out there, we call call ourselves uh, the John Olver alums, who passed through his office over time first in the Massachusetts State House and then others uh, in Washington and the Capitol. And uh, what an amazing uh, man he was. He was he was just the most amazing mentor to people who cared about public service. So in addition to all the legislation he wrote and, and voted for and all of the economic development and community development work that he did and all kinds of amazing things that, that he worked on, one of the most uh, uh, undervalued or underrecognized things that he did was he mentored a couple of generations of public servants who went off to do in their own careers, uh, modeled after his approach to politics and to serving the public. <clears throat> Excuse me he, um, he he raised a whole group of people. We have. People who became mayors, state legislators, uh, one of his former chiefs of staff at the state house became uh, assistant secretary of the United States Department of Agriculture. I mean, the John Over alums and clones—excuse <clears throat> me—I'm a little stuffed up this morning. Uh, basically, uh, ended up. So many ended up all over uh, both federal and state government, and carried on in their own careers the values and the approach and the, um, the way John, you know, taught us. It was all about, you know, listening. He could give he could give quite a long speech, as we all know. <laughs> yeah. I, used, I used to joke about having gone to the John Older School of Public Speaking. But the reality is <laughs> he did much more listening than he ever did talking. And because he listened so carefully and so well and had such depth of background and uh, ability to sort through the the fact from the fiction and the and the chaff from the wheat. He was able to find common ground and build solutions that really mattered. I remember a conversation I had with him once on a particular issue. and I said, John, um, how how are you going to navigate this issue? Because it was an issue that was so dear. To the hearts of uh, a cadre, a a portion of his district, and yet the majority of his district did not accept that point of view. And he said, Stan, if you give people nothing, then they don't feel like they're being represented. So you have to find your way toward solutions that will um, provide support for the values and and things that uh, people want, even if sometimes they're not popular. I mean, he would not do anything, you know, illegal or immoral or anything like that. But he would so carefully study and understand issues, and he'd be able to find a niche where he could speak to those people who would otherwise be left on the sidelines and not receive anything from their point of view out of their elected representative. And that's why he just, he got elected, he got elected, he got elected. He he, he never lost an election. When he ran for the state Senate, at that point, um, a very capable gentleman from, from Goshen, John Barris, was the incumbent Republican state senator. And that seat had been held by Republicans for about 100 years. A Democrat may have squeaked in some somewhere 100 years earlier. But John went around to the Democratic town committees and he said, uh, Uh, It's up or out for me. I'm I'm in my second term in the House. I see I'm going nowhere in the House, so I don't want to waste my time there. So I've done the analysis, and I have figured out how to win this race, and I'm going to win this race by about 300 votes. And, of course, all of these Democrats who've been laboring in these Republican communities for years— uh, and, and only Republicans were being elected at that time to county office and and um, uh, mostly in the legislature, most of the legislators in the region. He crafted a path. And sure enough, he ran and he won by just about the number of votes he said he'd win by because he did his homework. He, he did the numbers. He studied the ballot questions and how people voted in the district compared them with his own positions and his own values. He studied uh, precinct by precinct, town by town, where he could find the votes. And sure enough, he won by roughly the votes he said he was going to
1: win by. So, Stan Rosenberg, let me interrupt to ask you this, because what you have described is someone who sounds like a natural politician, uh, a very studious um, and... Uh, involved and reflective person, but an effective politician. And what I think of when I think of John Olver is the most counterintuitive person to be a politician and an effective politician. I mean, you alluded to uh, his public speaking. I remember some meetings with John that were very long, and uh, I remember our first meeting, which was with you in attendance when John Oliver was a state senator and John Callahan and I, John Callahan was the district attorney for the Northwestern District Attorney's Office at the time. I was there as a representative of the defense bar, and we came down to lobby Senator Oliver about a mandatory minimum provision that we were both opposed to, and I remember the meeting so well, thinking, well, I really prepared for this, and here was this person speaking, well, Bill...
2: (laughs) <laughs> Thank you.
1: Uh, and I said, this guy is a state, state senator? How did that happen? I wasn't here when he was elected first. Um, and and there he was, very effective. I mean, you talk about the alums, the John Oliver alums, when you think about Natalie Blay and you and uh, David Narkowitz and the Narkowitz. list go, goes on and on. And all very effective. And I think really kind of naturals as, as being po- political um, and um t- Buzz Eisenberg has a comment.
6: Yeah, I do. Uh, hi, Stan Rosenberg. This is Buzz Eisenberg. And I, I just wanted to say I was in a meeting once with Bob Pura and John Ulver. We were talking about, you remember, when GCC was being, uh, the core was being rebuilt. When and Bob Pura, I take it, was mm-hmm. the president of GCC? He was okay. the president of GCC. And yeah. we had a meeting that was scheduled for about a half an hour. And after about an hour and 45 minutes, we – it just kept going on and on and on, but all of it was meaningful. And as it was about to close, Bob Pura said, "This is what happens when a game goes into overtime." <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that comment. Oh,
3: that's wonderful! <laughs> hey, Buzz, it's great to hear your voice. I haven't seen you for a while. Boy, you you've done some really great stuff along the way. So thank you for everything you you've done. Well, you're you very know. generous
6: because you are you one of my heroes radio. I know it's so much fun, and I'm here you with Newman, and on it's radio? great. It, it, it is. It's fun. But, I, uh, you know, it, it, you're one of the people I have so much profound respect for. You were such a great public servant, and I uh, I do miss seeing you, and I hope to see you soon.
3: Thank you. It was a privilege to uh, serve in office, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to the people of this region who um, allowed me to go down there and be their voice. So, And I did the best I could with it. So, um, yeah, John was— the most unusual politician, because um, on the one hand, if you can't get elected, you can't do the job. And he managed to do the analysis, figure out how to get elected, and he succeeded to getting elected. But then once he got to Boston, he did the job just so expertly and just so effectively, and it always – People always wondered, like, how can this guy who takes so long to communicate what he wants to communicate, how can this guy be as effective as he is? Not a backslapper. He's not running around uh, tr- trying to take credit. He's not looking for the headlines. He's just there. He's, he was a workhorse, not a show horse, as he said in his uh, TV commercials for Congress.
1: It was one of the great TV ads. It was. It showed. I I, I was looking for it online, and I couldn't find the one I was looking for. I did find some John Oliver ads online, but I couldn't find the one. It's He's running, and he's running, and he's running from one town to one town to another town to another town in the district, um, and it really showed him as someone working. That said— He really, in many ways, didn't like campaigns at all. He really didn't like debates. He'd prepare for them, but he kind of hated them. Um, And he didn't really like the campaigning all that much, unlike a lot of politicians. And yet people liked seeing him on the campaign trail. Let's take a quick break here. I want to come back. I want to continue this conversation. We want to continue this conversation with former state Senate President Stan Rosenberg. Can you stay with us a few more minutes?
0: I certainly can.
1: Great. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Following the end of this semester, all community colleges in Massachusetts will no longer require students enrolling to have the COVID-19 vaccine. The Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges, which represents all 15 community colleges in the state, recently made the decision based on several factors, including the end of the national and public health COVID-19 emergencies. The COVID-19 vaccine has been mandatory in all community colleges in the state since January 2022. A Greenfield man is under arrest for allegedly pulling a gun on a person at Stop and Shop in Greenfield yesterday afternoon. 39-year-old Luis Marin was arrested by Greenfield police around 2 p.m. No shots were fired and the incident is still under investigation. Marin was arraigned in Greenfield District Court today. Belize Auto Group is purchasing Steve Lewis Subaru in Hadley. The select board approved the transfer of the Class 1 auto sales license, and the Subaru dealership will now fall under the Belize motor sales umbrella. Belize plans to expand the footprint of the property and construct a new modern facility on the site, according to the Gazette. The license allows 187 vehicles to be parked on site, subject to conditions set by the Planning Board, Conservation Commission, and Building Inspector. And the Blarney blowout is set for this weekend at UMass Amherst. Students preparing for this year's unofficial pre-spring break St. Patrick's celebration. The tradition has a checkered history with more than 70 people being arrested in 2014. UMass Amherst promised restrictions on parking and visitors on campus and mentioned plenty of alternative events.
8: For today, look for increasing clouds, highs 40 to 44. Tonight, snow and a wintry mix. It'll be breezy, overnight lows 28 to 32. And the outlook for Saturday, snow and a wintry mix tapering off in the afternoon. It'll be windy, highs in the mid-30s. I'm 22 New Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5
9: WHMP.
7: This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
9: Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El lunes, la Casa Blanca dio a las agencias gubernamentales 30 días para garantizar que no tengan la aplicación TikTok de propiedad china en dispositivos y sistemas federales. En un intento por mantener seguros los datos de Estados Unidos, todas las agencias federales deben eliminar TikTok de los teléfonos y sistemas y prohibir que el tráfico de Internet llegue a la empresa, dijo la directora de la Oficina de Administración y Presupuesto, Shalanda Young, a las agencias en un memorando de orientación. La prohibición, ordenada por el Congreso a fines del año pasado, sigue a acciones similares de Canadá, la Unión Europea, Taiwán y más de la mitad de los estados de Estados Unidos. La prohibición de dispositivos, si bien afecta a una pequeña porción de la base de usuarios de TikTok en Estados Unidos, agrega combustible a las llamadas para una prohibición total de la aplicación para compartir videos. Las preocupaciones de seguridad nacional sobre China aumentaron en las últimas semanas después de que un globo chino voló sobre los Estados Unidos. TikTok, propiedad de ByteDance, ha dicho que las preocupaciones se deben a informaciones errónea y ha negado haber usado la aplicación para espiar a los estadounidenses. Este martes, el Comité de Asuntos Exteriores de la Cámara votará un proyecto de ley que le daría al presidente Joe Biden la autoridad para prohibir TikTok en todos los dispositivos de Estados Unidos. En otras informaciones, la gobernadora de Massachusetts, Maura Healy, dio a conocer el lunes un plan de reforma fiscal de aproximadamente 750 millones de dólares destinado a ofrecer ahorros significativos para familias, inquilinos, personas mayores y otros. La gobernadora está proponiendo varios cambios al Código Fiscal. El plan necesitará la aprobación legislativa. Se espera que Healy presente su proyecto de ley de reforma tributaria el miércoles junto con las recomendaciones presupuestarias requeridas para el próximo año fiscal. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
7: This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: And we continue our conversation with former State Senate President Stan Rosenberg, who of course was a longtime representative and a longtime state senator from the town of Amherst and in surrounding communities. And we had continued our conversation about John Oliver uh, during the break, and I'd like to bring all of the listeners uh, in on that conversation. And you were talking, Stan, about how effective John was and what a model in many ways, notwithstanding all the fun we make of him and his public speaking and his somewhat lugubrious style. Um, but you point out how by being a student of government and governance and issues and people, John Over was effective. He has his name associated with every major economic development project that has gone on in this region for decades and decades. And we were talking about the Northern uh, Tier project. Maybe you could give us a minute on that as an example and then your final reflections for this morning on his service and his passing. Stan Rosenberg.
3: Yeah, so the Northern Tier project is such an a great example of, you know, the the unusual approach john had to the job so you know when you think about a legislator you think about them taking public policy positions and filing legislation and and all that and he did plenty of that he was way ahead of his time you know he was one of the earliest people in the state house on reproductive rights on women's rights on lgbtq rights he basically um was he was every place where he needed to be in order to try to help Uh, shape a direction and um, and meet the needs of of the people of this district, including economic development. And think about, you know, all of those uh, mill towns, uh, communities that um, whose economy was built on the rivers and the uh, manufacturing up along those rivers and what happened in the early 20th century uh, early to mid twentieth century, as those factories were closing, and uh, communities were left without their core economic development or, or uh, you know, e- economic enterprises, and he he saw this, and and he he created this concept of the northern tier corridor, and he systematically, first as a state senator, and then in Congress, he systematically. Uh, helped the communities get the resources and the support they needed, cash as well as uh, professional uh, advice and access to government agencies, and project after project after project that helped rebuild the economy of those communities along that northern tier route were achieved. And it started with him getting this idea and thinking about what could we do, not one town not for one town or one even one town at a time, but thinking of it as a corridor, and it was decades of work, and the and the result of that is evident, and just that the care with which he uh, approached a problem like that, and you wouldn't think necessarily that a legislator would be become you know the chief of economic development along the northern tier corridor. What he did, he organized all of the institutions and all of the organizations and the chambers and all of those groups, and together they crafted this vision of what can we do together, and he provided all the quiet support behind the background, behind the scenes, first in Boston and then in Washington, to give these communities and that region, that that northern tier, the resources and help it needed in order to uh, reimagine its future and make concrete steps toward improving the quality of life in those communities by improving the economy, transportation, education, all of the elements you need to build a vibrant set of communities. So just a really amazing guy.
1: We've been speaking with Stan Rosenberg, former State Senate President. We really appreciate your time this morning. Stan, thank you so very much. And we really look forward to having you back on the show for a lengthier conversation about what you're up to today, and we really appreciate and thank you again for all you've done. For but I just
6: want to add, Stan, your remembrance of John Over is it's really moving in um, to, to hear how governance is supposed to work. Um, people like John, people like you, we have
1: a deep, deep debt to you.
3: He was a great gift to
0: all of us.
1: We leave it there. Thank you so much, Stan.
0: Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's new at the Whateley Inn? everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with
6: easy online ordering. Visit waitleyinn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Skateboarding basketball, dancing. Ross Gay has plenty to talk about in his new book, Inciting Joy. Author of the best-selling Book of Delights, Ross Gay returns with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays on joy in its many forms. Pick up Inciting Joy, plus a new paperback edition of Book of Delights at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Plus, order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Looking for the
5: perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer-making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com
0: for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community.
10: Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen
0: anytime, anywhere.
10: Bye, guys. I'll see you at this weekend.
0: And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, DESE is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary
11: and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education.
5: The Sap is running. Local hero sugar houses are stoking the fire and boiling that one and only New England delight, maple
11: syrup. Visit the scenic hills of Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Tour Maple Corner sugar house to see the production of maple syrup. On the weekends, the griddle at Maple Corner Farm is cooking up pancakes, French toast, breakfast sandwiches, bacon, sausage, and eggs. Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Breakfast on the weekends and take home
7: some Maple Corner Farm syrup. Visit the North Hadley Sugar Shack. Watch some that boil And bring your appetite, it's the North Hadley Sugar Shack's 28th annual Sugar and Breakfast Season, serving Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays 7 to 1. North Hadley Sugar Shack, their own pure maple syrup is available year-round, but the sugaring season is short and sweet. Don't miss it. Go to North Hadley this weekend. Step into the season—maple
5: sugaring season. Visit a local hero sugar shack for a directory and map showing
0: the local hero shacks. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
6: And this is Buzz Eisenberg. Thanks. Uh, welcome back to the show. Um, we are, um, you know, Bill, there was one other story I wanted to tell about John Olver before we go, which is our son was in seventh grade and he was elected president of the student government association for the middle school. John Olver came because the school needed, I think it was a roof and there was discussion about whether or not the bond was going to be able to be floated. John Olver kept calling our 13 year old, whatever he was in seventh grade, Mr. President, during their conversations and explained to him why bonding is difficult in Massachusetts. That It can only be 10% of the overall budget. I just remember the detail that he went into with our seventh grader who walked away with a clear understanding of how bonding works is vis-a-vis the Massachusetts budget and the respect that was garnered by, uh, John calling him Mr. President repeatedly. I just wanted to finish up with that, uh, that John Oliver remembrance um, before we move on.
1: Well, let me tell you what we are doing here in the studio. We have managed to lose Max Page, and um, my phone is hereby been absconded with. Ah, there it is. Okay, and so we're going to try to get Max back on the on the phone here because I really want people to know about. What is happening with the state budget and its remarkable uh, provision in Moore Healy's Governor Healy's proposed budget, which is tuition-free and debt-free public higher education, specifically with regard to community colleges? It's really quite, quite something. Um, so, let me—I'm going to try to have Max uh, join us again. What was your? Th- you have some thoughts with regard to, uh, regard to Moore Healy's budget.
6: Well, it's a $55 billion budget, and uh, as you say, it's just so incredible that that which we've all been hoping for, community colleges are suffering right now for under-enrollment and a lot of other problems, and part of the problem is people cannot afford to pay tuition to go to a community college, which generally, among our 15 community colleges in this Commonwealth, it is a high quality and, uh, for many people, affordable Uh, education. But a lot of people, especially after the pandemic, just cannot afford to do it. And who better to talk about it than Max Page? I hope we can get him back um, so that we could talk about this this wonderful development.
1: And it's been a top priority for the Massachusetts Teachers Association for many years. Uh, Max Page, when he was vice president, worked tirelessly on that And Max Page, as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, has been working tirelessly on this. Max Page is now with us. Max, I'd really love to know your thoughts with regard to Governor Healy's proposed budget.
12: Thanks, Bill. And good morning. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Um, So this is an important moment because so many of us worked very, very hard over many years uh, and Western Mass was a huge supporter of the millionaire's tax, the fair share amendment. Um, and so what we see in the governor's budget is um, we're seeing the fruition of all that effort, all that work, and that election. And for education, we see there's uh, f- full funding of the Student Opportunity Act, um, $600 million for K-12 public schools, big, one of the biggest increases in years is in her budget. And in public higher education, you know, listeners know, may you know, I, I teach at UMass and long been advocating for funding um, affordability, high quality public higher ed and the governor has included in this first year for fair share spending, money from the fair share amendment, the millionaire's tax, 370 million additional dollars that will make um, public colleges much more affordable it will invest in fixing our buildings, $140 million for fixing buildings across the 29 uh, public higher education campuses and many millions others in for for student support services to make sure students get through, not just to just the college, but to get through to graduation. So there are a number of really uh, transformative investments. Uh, we think there's a lot more needed, but this is a huge first step
1: you mention a very large number and it's a lot of dollars with regard to yes. what i think comes under the rubric of deferred maintenance which is we just won't pay for keeping up the buildings that we have to have in order for people to be able to be safely in them and to use them and all of that um this this bill has now come due and it seems like the governor is intent on paying it do you share that that viewpoint
12: well i i would say uh the 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 amount of money needed to truly repair our buildings and also build new ones is far, far bigger than uh, than is in this budget. But this is a big new chunk of money. I think it's so important for listeners to know that when you walk on a public campus, you say, oh, it's a state university, it's UMass. These are all public buildings. Well, increasingly over the past quarter century, when you look at those buildings, you should see student fees. They're paid for out of tuition and student fees not paid for by the state as they once were, and we're really trying in the MTA to go go back to the future to say these are state buildings; they should not be paid for with uh, student fees that turn into student debt. And so, the governor's down payment with this hundred forty million dollars is a is a it's a big number, but it's also small for the problem. So we're hoping that as the fair share amendment rolls out, and there should be a lot more money in the in the coming years that we'll even have more for fixing our buildings and also other important uh, investments.
1: Well, in addition to the payment for repairs, there's a lot of money that will be used essentially to allow our colleges to be more accessible in many ways. Tell us about that.
12: Yes, yeah, so... Um, As uh, as I've said, we've talked about many times, Bill, our goal in the MTA is that we should have a higher ed system that is high quality, but and is also not but and is also debt free. That is a student, whatever means, can go to a public college or university in Massachusetts and know that they will not graduate with student debt, which is crushing to them um, and is also bad for the economy of Massachusetts. So. What's great about this first budget is that two, two things. One is the governor makes an initial commitment to, a full, to for Mass Reconnect. That is, for community college should be free for students over 25. We have 700,000 students in Massachusetts who have some college credit and they're over 25 but have never gotten a degree. So it's really great group to focus on. Bring them back, invite them back, make it affordable for them. The second thing is that she is, in this proposed um, budget, the governor is moving a step in the direction or a further step of what we've long argued, which is uh, making, eliminating tuition fees is great, but it's not nearly enough to allow working class students to be able to go to college and see through, see themselves through to graduation. You need to cover and support the working class students with Support for their living expenses, housing, food, childcare, and um, this budget starts to do that. It expands something called Mass Grants Plus, which covers not only tuition fees for um, our working-class students but also covers some expenses. We obviously think you need to cover more expenses, but those are those are developments. Both of those developments are in the right direction.
1: What does this tell us about? funding and expenses and indebtedness of students at the state colleges and at UMass Amherst? Does it have an effect? Does this budget affect that? Or is this just, is this limited? I don't mean to say just, but is this limited to community colleges?
12: Well, the the governor has um, foregrounded this community colleges with the Mass Reconnect program. But the funding for the a big almost hundred million dollars in additional funding for the Mass Grant Plus program will absolutely help out students who attend any level, community colleges, state universities, or the UMass system. Furthermore, the the investment in buildings, if you can take some of the costs to the campuses off their own roles, then they don't have to turn those into student fees. So, there's my campus, UMass Amherst, spends over a hundred million dollars just to service the debt on the bonds that they've taken out to build and repair the buildings. So, if we start to chip away at that and say to the campuses, "No, you don't have to take out the bonds as much," and you, um, you don't, and then therefore you don't need to pass that on to your students, we'll have uh, less student debt.
1: So, this will have an effect of reducing. I take it, reducing the amount of increases in student fees and or tuition?
12: That is the hope. And in fact, the governor includes, in the, in, as part of the fair share spending, some, uh, sort of a tuition lock. So if you get into UMass Amherst, for instance, and your first year you have a certain tuition, that will stay through your four years. And so you have clarity about how much you're going to need to spend and you won't have to suddenly... Each year, wonder is it going to be a 2 or 5 or 7% tuition or fee increase? But what is good is that by providing funds to the campuses, it recognizes that even if the student doesn't have to pay more, the costs will go up to provide that education. So they are actually providing, um, she's proposing to provide some funds to each campus to recognize that um, the, the, the growing cost without turning those growing costs into student fee increases.
1: So where does this leave us with regard to what the legislature needs to do? The governor's proposed it, I assume, but I don't want to make an unwarranted assumption that the legislature, the legislators and the legislature will look favorably on this. Is that your political prognosis?
12: Oh, Bill, I don't know. What I would say is that everyone, all the leadership, governor, speaker, Senate president, have all said that they want the fair share funds to go as the voters said, which is an additional new spending in education and transportation. Whether they follow exactly what the governor has proposed, I'm not sure. And in fact, we will be saying all the great things about those proposals, but also suggesting improvements in how the money is allocated and the, the amount that is allocated. So there, there's a long way to go before we have a final budget. But to have the governor start with, major reinvestments in public higher ed and commit to K-12, full K-12 funding is uh, is a great start.
1: Okay. Half a minute left. The full K-12 funding means what?
12: Well, and it's actually not all that we in the MTA want, but what it means is that we have something called the Student Opportunity Act passed in 2019. There is a rollout over seven years in which each year there is more to be spent. Um, and the governor's proposal fully honors that now I think we are in the fourth year of that um, of that program. So it's nearly $600 million will be spent uh, in public education funding. She goes actually a little bit above and beyond what is the formula requires and provides some more money for transportation, for special education services. So we think there's other needs for more counselors, for living wages, for our paraprofessionals, for parental leave, so we're going to be advocating for even additional funds, but it certainly, she's honored uh, the Student Opportunity Act itself.
1: We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page. He is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and this is our regular time with Max on Fridays. Your State U you, is the title. Thank you so much, Max Page. Really appreciate your time.
12: Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. Bye.
1: Thanks, Max.
0: Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.
7: It's 10 o'clock.
10: I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Alec Murdoch speaks just before he's sentenced for a double murder. I'm innocent. I would never hurt my wife Maggie. And I would never hurt my son, Paul Paul. Murdoch faces life in prison with no chance of parole a day after he was convicted of killing both of them. Prosecutor Creighton Waters urging the harshest penalty possible. I would submit to
13: you that the only just sentence here to give justice for Maggie and Paul is the maximum. that would be two consecutive life sentences.
10: Judge Clifton Newman is addressing Murdoch right now. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before convicting him yesterday. Parts of Texas and Louisiana have been battered by the same storm system that slammed the mountains of Southern California. Correspondent Janet Chamleon reports from Shreveport.
7: Little Elm, Texas, where at least six cars and trucks were buried under bricks, metal beams, and other debris when devastating winds collapsed a shopping center. It just was like a boom. it was on us we got a tornado on the ground in the dallas area wind gusts as high as 80 miles an hour Downing power lines and plunging hundreds of thousands into the dark. Back
10: in California, some people have been trapped in their homes for almost a week. Michelle Calkins' first floor is buried in snow. We need help. People are trapped in their homes. They cannot get medicine, heart medicine, insulin. Avalanche warning still up in Northern California, Sierra Nevada. Walgreens Boot Alliance has had a change of heart about dispensing abortion pills in the mail in 20 states. Though the procedure is legal in some of them, the pharmacy chain's up against Republican attorneys general who say the company risks breaking the law. One of the first black officers in the Army's elite Green Beret will receive the Medal of Honor at the White House this morning for his heroism in Vietnam nearly 60 years ago. Retired retired Colonel Paris Davis nomination vanished twice at the height of the civil rights movement.
11: It was as silent as uh, the middle of the night until CBS came along and made it happen.
10: CBS News correspondent Katherine Herridge helped bring his story to the Pentagon's attention. Researchers have found a new statue believed to have been part of a series in eastern Polynesia. CBS's Stacy Lynn.
7: More than 1,000 Moai statues have been discovered on Easter Island in the Pacific, and scientists thought there were no more. But a new and smaller Moai was just found in a dried-up lake. Janet Van Tilburg told 60 Minutes, no two are alike.
10: They're different in the line of their mouth. They're different in, of course, their size and shape. This one was found laying on its side. The Dow's up 154 points. This is CBS News.
0: Nobody should have to pay for one-size-fits-all insurance coverage. Liberty Mutual customizes your car and home insurance so you only pay for what you need. Liberty Mutual Insurance.
11: Yeah, I'm so
8: stressed. Our business is growing. We've got people all over now. Ooma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 50 features. Uma. Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Just $24.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Ooma.
5: Now you're feeling it. Find small business calm at umacom slash radio. That's Ooma.com slash radio.
4: A
10: long standing college hoops record still stands. For 6 1 guard Antoine Davis. La-
7: For WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. Teachers, students and community members gathered at Amherst Pelham Regional High School to express their frustrations and asked the school committee for an increase in funding at a joint meeting last night. Teachers say they're frustrated because they don't believe their compensation reflects how much they give and are asking for more than a proposed 2% cost of living increase. Currently, Amherst teachers receive a base salary of $44,254. Officials say the district is approaching a financial cliff and may be forced to consider eliminating 15 full-time positions and offer early retirement incentives. Teachers are currently working without a contract under a work to rule, which means they do not work outside school hours. The family dollar in East Hampton is temporarily closed due to safety code violations. The discount store on Union Street was fined $2,600 by the city's fire department last week and received a cease and desist letter until a number of fire safety code violations have been rectified. The problems began last May, when a fire inspector found entrances and exits blocked by merchandise during an annual inspection. Emergency lighting was also not working, and issues of cleanliness and storage of bulk materials were also cited. During a follow-up inspection last month, no improvements had been made. The company must now pay all fines and correct all of the code violations before they can reopen. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. And Casenzi Auto Realty, part of the Tommy Carr Auto Group, is expanding. The company recently bought a large commercial lot in Northampton at 171 187 King Street. That site was the former home of Don Leah's Honda dealership.
8: For today, look for increasing clouds, highs 40 to 44. Tonight, snow and a wintry mix. It'll be breezy, overnight lows 28 to 32. And the outlook for Saturday, snow and a wintry mix tapering off in the afternoon. It'll be windy, highs in the mid-30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
6: And welcome to our program. I'm Buzz Eisenberg, and I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are really pleased to have uh, our representative on the Governor's Council. We'll talk about what that is for those who don't know. Here in District Eight, we have uh, Tara District Jacobs.
1: Eight. By the way, is where, if you're listening, you you live.
6: You that's where you live. District Eight here in Western Massachusetts. And our representative on the on the Governor our counselor is Tara Jacobs. Hello, Tara Jacobs.
14: Hello. Morning to uh, both of you and to everyone listening.
6: Well, thank you, and uh, it's really great to hear your voice again. We, uh, we—I don't since January fifth, when you were sworn in to be a member of the Governor's Council, um, we haven't spoken. So, tell us—you've uh, been busy, I understand, since January fifth.
14: I, I have definitely um, been out there uh, busy and and uh, doing what I can to. Um, Serve, serve district eight western mass well and and the rest of the state in this role both you taken on the role so
6: yeah you and Bill were talking before we went on the air about the need to refresh people's memory about what exactly is the governor's council what is the responsibility of the governor's council
14: yeah you know and i I do hope more people are aware of what it is than than uh, Previously, since we have talked so much about it, but um, I still find when I'm out there that more often than not, still need to remind people what what Governor's Council is. Um, we are a group that that um, is responsible for um, confirming all of the judges across the state and and selecting our parole board. And if the parole board sends forward pardons or commutations, then we weigh in on that. Um, every clerk magistrate and assistant clerk magistrate um, comes through governor's council for confirmation. And um, and the and the list goes on and on and includes things like um, what's called draws on the Treasury, warrants that we have to approve that literally are um, chunks of the state budget that um, without our approval, the, the state kind of grinds to a halt and things don't get paid. So um, that's sort of like a housekeeping Aspect of, of the work Governor's Council does, but it's so important. It's the payroll for statewide and all the infrastructure projects and, and capital maintenance and everything else. Um, so it's it's sort of a one of the few non-judiciary, um, constitutionally described roles of the Governor's Council. Um, and ironically, one of the things that um, has been the reason we've had the meetings we've had while we're waiting for the new administration to start the nomination process again
1: I'd like to ask you about that, Governor's Counselor, Tara Jacobs. What we read at the end of Governor Baker's term was confirmation after confirmation after confirmation after confirmation after after judges who were, well, for the most part, establishment kind of lawyers. Um, And what it seemed to me, uh, speaking personally, that he was trying to do... Was to take every possible vacancy and fill it before he left, and there is this, <laughs> and there's this picture, this photograph of the judges he oh, appointed yeah. had confirmed a massive number. Um, that was
14: amazing. Yes, and
1: and his nominations and confirmations while in office uh, uh, include the entire Supreme Judicial Court, all mm-hmm, seven members mm-hmm. of the court, and many many members of the Massachusetts appeals courts and district court judges and superior court judges and clerk magistrates and the list goes on and on and I think you have been busy I've followed you in the newspapers meeting with a lot of bar associations and other relevant stakeholders but I'm wondering how much is there for the governor's council to do uh... how much is there how many vacancies are there that you anticipate ruling on that will be filled by nominations assuming their confirmation by your council uh, from Governor Healey, so help us understand where that all stands
14: well a yes, you're right. I mean the flurry of nominations confirmations at the tail end of the Baker administration was was overwhelming, and normally Governor's Council meets once a week on Wednesdays in the State House, and there were so many um that to facilitate the hearings for all of the the nominees coming through; they were meeting multiple times a week at the, at the last few months of of the of the prior administration. So that just gives you a concept of just how busy they were. Um, having said that, you know the the governor's council right now is is light because it's. I think it's it's less because of that um, flurry of nominations and more because the new administration rebuilds the machine, uh, for the nomination process. So there's executive order that kicks it off that hasn't been released yet. And I'm, I'm betting they have it done, but they're recruiting the, the the judicial nominating committee, um, and, uh, and other aspects of, of the nomination process that the administration kind of recrafts in its own image, um, and so, you know, we, I was just in the in the state house this week for, for a meeting and was asking when they thought nominations might start coming through, and it's, it's basically that's the answer. It's like, well, we're still uh, finishing the, you know, recruiting process and, the, and getting the executive orders ready to go, and, and it's coming, but I didn't get a, a time frame for when, um, but once, once that kicks off, nominations will start rolling in again. And you know, just traveling around this district, you know, I I have met with um judges who who delayed their retirement, um, to give the next administration, the Healy administration, the opportunity. So there will be there will be nominations start rolling in. Um I've also heard there's a parole board position coming up, um, in the next few months as well and um so there's there will be work to do. It's just it's a slow start. Just uh, it's the nature of the handover. I think more than anything.
1: You mentioned the judicial nominating commit commission committee, mm-hmm. um, and I would like it if you would take a moment to explain this process of how a judge is nominated and then ultimately either confirmed or not confirmed by the council on which. You sit the governor's Council, so maybe you could take us through that process for a minute because I'm pretty sure most listeners don't know it
14: yeah, so it's it's a um, it's an intensive as I think it should be a rigorous process to vet um, and eventually confirm our judges in the state and it starts with an application um, and then uh, a nomination from um, the governor to start the process, and and the it may it may well change as part of the executive order. But my understanding of how it has worked over time is that um, the JNC, the Judicial Nominating Committee, is is the first um, that does a, first a blind vetting process, and then an in person they they conduct their own hearings um, to determine who to send forward. To the next steps in the pipeline and so they will they will do background and and experience and um and honestly i'm not even sure what else they they focus on i would assume they do something similar to governor's council in terms of character and and uh references and things like that um there's another group the joint bar uh committee who is um so the first group the jnc is is all appointees from from the governor, um, intends to be all lawyers. Um, the next is definitely all lawyers. It's the bar associations who appoint themselves. There's, um, there's prescribed seats for each county's bar association. And then there's affiliate, um, association bars that have seats. Um, and actually on that, on that, uh, front, I, I've been trying to persuade the new administration to expand the, the JBC's representation and voices there because there are a few affiliate bars that didn't have a seat um, in the prior administration, the ones that I had pointed out to them. And there may well be more, but the ones I had pointed out were um, there's an LGBTQ bar and there's two African-American bars. One is sort of like a... Um, Sort of an overarching um, bar association, and the other is Black women, um, and those three I did not have seats before. So I'd love to just in an effort towards more diversity to to make sure all those voices have seats at the table as well. Um, and in addition, there's, there's interviews that happen with the governor, the lieutenant governor, chief legal counsel. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't know at what stage those interviews happen. They may happen after the JBC or before. Um, and then the final the final stage in the process is meeting with governor's counsel who holds hearings. And then you generally the following week after the hearing we'll vote.
6: I just um, want to, to, to point out... Not. Uh, Tara, when you talk about the JNC, the Judicial Nominating Committee, uh, many of us applicants put people down that they think that the JNC should speak with. And we get calls, Uh, local lawyers who worked with the lawyers who are uh, applying for these judges' positions uh, often get calls to just see what was your experience like with that person who you served uh, with in the bar. And... uh, for us, it's kind of important, I think, I, and yeah, I think definitely. for you too, because Absolutely. you're very concerned about whether Western Massachusetts has um, people sitting on the bench who are familiar with Western Massachusetts.
14: For sure, and I think I think that's such an important component all along the way, including up to the governor's council stage. Like my my hope is that, especially when it is a local. Western Mask um, nominee that I, I would love to have, um, and I'm planning to have hearings um, locally so that we can have as much of that kind of in-person, first-person um, references and experiences shared, and just beyond that, just to engage people in what the work of the Governor's Council is and and, and to have hearings that really just sort of um, help help inform and engage our communities in in that work, but I do think that first person, um, whether it be words of support or words of concern, I think those are both equally valid points of view to hear, um, be a part of the process. Um, yeah, so I think I think probably all along the way, there's there's a lot of that feedback that comes into the process from from the community.
1: So Tara Jacobs, you you mentioned the vetting process. I'll make this comment a. I was going to say a few, it was probably more than a few decades ago, in a moment that I cannot remotely begin to explain, I actually looked at a judge's application uh, to send in. and All 50 it, pages or something? No, that's exactly the point I want to make. It was about six pages. Oh, it was now. really easy to fill out. Oh, it's longer now. And now. Definitely it's like, longer as, now. It's as Buzz says, about 50 pages of questions about everything Now it's closer to
14: the 50 pages. It's it's probably, it's like 80-something questions, something like that. Um, And that may well change again. That's the whole thing with the, each administration really puts its stamp on the process. So that application may expand again, or it may even shrink. I I really don't know until we see what comes out.
6: I once Um, had a colleague, you know this colleague as well, who served eventually as a probate court judge. When he was filling out the form, he said, we have a mandatory retirement age of 70. I hope I can finish the form before I hit seventy.
14: <laughs> That's funny. It is it is a fairly intense application. Um, the past administration's one anyway. Um and I'm I'm gonna guess it if anything it'll it'll grow rather than shrink. Or it may just stay the same. But um but it tends to be very repetitive too, like reading reading the way the questions are asked, it's like paraphrasing the same sort of questions over and over again to some degree um, that have to do with experience and things that you're most proud of and what have you learned, lessons learned in the work that you've done. So reading some of the prior applications, they tend to, it fully looks like some of them just cut and paste the same answer again and again throughout the application. (laughs) Um, But then there's also, you know, financial background and, and, um, you know, philosophical questions. It's, it's, it kind of, um, meanders around very much a typical job applications questions and then and then ones that are very much about the judiciary and and what you would bring to the bench and why you would be a good um, a good member um, to, to get the spot
1: I've looked at the application recently not with any personal interest but to see what was asked it's reminded me of all the cramming for tests that i hated back in high school i mean this is as you point out tarjects is a very intense application and a lot of information that is required to be provided and that will be checked out uh, by the various committees that pass on judges uh, in our states i we're going to take now a couple minutes for messages when we come back i want to ask you something that was a really important issue during the campaign and that is your background for the governor's counselor position. And again, for uh, if you're listening uh, and you live in Western Massachusetts, Tara Jacobs is your governor's counselor. Uh, that was the question of your not being a lawyer. Yeah. And I'd love to know, I'm going to ask you on the other side, what has that meant for you in terms of your getting to know and being part of this process on the governor's council? We'll be great. right back. More
0: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
8: What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible.
10: Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents
14: gas Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled
0: gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
10: Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 Store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants. Plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you are going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store. Open right now at whmp.com.
11: I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy, your neighbor is the person behind the counter, and Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling, and Like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom-and-pop shop, supporting the other mom-and-pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield, too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling. Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store, on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year.
0: you're listening to talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg WHMP
1: and we continue our conversation with governor's counselor Tara Jacobs counselor for district 8 which is Western Massachusetts there was a issue uh, during the campaign about your not being an attorney Tara Jacobs and mm-hmm. whether or not that would affect your effectiveness and your ability to uh, participate in in a really meaningful and important way on the governor's council. And I'm wondering what you have found so far with regard to that aspect of your qualifications in particular in terms of your serving and what you have experienced so far as a counselor.
14: Yeah. Um, so it, it definitely that was one of the distinctions, particularly in the primary, because for the general, neither of neither the two of us uh, our lawyers, but, um, but in the primary that definitely came up repeatedly and it was a point of difference. And, and the point I was making during the campaign, and I I feel it's bearing out, um, Well, A, there's no requirement to be a lawyer. There's no requirement for governor's counsel other than, you know, running and winning the seat. But that the background that I do bring, which is one of um, sort of a psychology, social psychology framework and a career that has been about understanding people, being able to read people really well and. And, and the background that had um, quite a lot of recruiting in it in terms of hiring um, on the advertising side and then in my role in school committee, having hired many uh, district administrative roles and for the library as well. Um, so having not started actually the nomination process, uh, we might want to talk about this again in, in several months. But in terms of um, sort of diving in on the role and, what's, and what I've been doing, um, I'm in an I, what I've been calling an intensive learning and listening mode. And I've been touring around, starting with Western Mass, although my goal eventually is to really get her across the state, um, visiting our courthouses and meeting our clerks and our judges and observing in courtrooms. And um, I went out to um, the parole board and sat in a lifetime parole hearing um, session with a couple of um, cases that came before them and got to meet the members of the parole board and, and observe them. In action, um, I'm. I've got. Could you? Could you court.
1: let me? Let me know so I can make sure everyone understands. Um, you sat in on a hearing where the parole board was deciding whether or not to grant parole for a person who is behind the razor wire now with a life sentence, did I understand correctly?
14: Yeah, well, uh, the tail end of one, and then I I came to see one in particular, but the first one ran over, so I got to watch the tail end of the first one. Um, Lifetime parole hearings are the only ones that are open to the public um, to come and view, and they also um, record them onto DVD so that you can actually take out from a library and and watch. Um, And so they... It's. They have the hearing. They don't actually give you. They don't deliver the the result in that moment. So they go and they they deliberate and make the decision later. So I don't know what the outcome is um, of the ones that I watched. But yeah, they have. Um, the person who has been sentenced to lifetime with the possibility of parole, um, their lawyer, and whatever uh, either representatives from their family and in support for them, or it, the ones that I saw both had victims' um, families there um, to give like victim impact kind of statements. Um, and it was it was fascinating. It was heartbreaking to hear. You know, the crimes themselves that had been committed many, many decades ago in both cases, but still were so potent for the families. And then, and then, you know, to hear what has been the experience behind, um, it was two very different cases. So one had really a, a lot of um, disciplinary experiences um, with fights and, and other things and moved around from place to place. Because While in jail. Of,
10: uh, while in a, prison a,
14: While in prison, yeah, including one one transfer to a Supermax facility for, for a few years and and that case um, was the one we came in on the tail end, so I, I missed most of the story there but um, but that was a juvenile case where um, literally it's been it's been about 40 years but um, I, I don't I didn't catch how old this person was when the initial crime happened, but it was, it had to have been pretty young to be a juvenile case. Um, and I do plan to go back again to watch a juvenile case from the beginning, because um, I do think that's
6: well. And a, uh, there's a, a very
14: specific kind of, of life
6: case. Yeah. Uh, so Tara Jacob, our governor's council member, uh, do you think when you are vetting people, whether it's for a clerk magistrate position, for a, a judge's position, or a parole officer's position... Are you looking for people who are ideologically in line with you, whose world view of of what their job responsibilities would be is in line with yours? Uh, what or not? Are you Are you looking for a more diverse bench, more diverse uh, yeah. body of clerks? Yeah. Please speak to That's
14: that. a great question. So, I'm definitely not looking for someone who's a cookie cutter of how I view the world. But having said that, um, there are a few things that are very important to me, and one one is definitely. Diversity and that expands in many directions, and what diversity means to me. It means I'd like to see more people of color on the bench, I'd like to see more women on the bench, but also it's the diversity of the area of practice to have a balanced bench in terms of. Um, You know, right now there's a lot of former prosecutors who've come through, which I I think is fine, but I'd like to see that expand to be a balance of, and I think for a little while maybe should over course correct in other directions, but, you know, um, people with a background in in being either a public defender or a private um, practicing defense side lawyer, but also things like family practice and things, other areas of, of the law, I think, need um, to sort of temper out the, the it seems like there's been a, a real skew trend towards former prosecutors.
6: Indeed, there has. So, uh, Tara Jacob, final question in, in the about minute and a half that we have left. So here you are, a rookie on the governor's council. You're from Western Massachusetts among uh, those members of the Governor's Council who are there in heavy populated areas. You're not one of them necessarily. Have you been been accepted by your your colleagues on the council?
14: They have been wonderful. They really are. They've been welcoming. They've given me lots of great um, sort of historic information and, and just sort of the 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 experience of getting into any new job where there's like just things to point out. Um, you know they've helped with all sorts of great resources, including things like you know subscription services that we have access to and getting me the passwords and things. Um, but no, they've been they've been phenomenal, and I'm really looking forward to to working with them. Um, I mean I'm sure there will come a point where there's going to be disagreement in the room, and but I have every expectation that that will be something that is you know civil and agree to disagree with holding anything personal about it um, and uh, and I'm really looking forward to to doing this work in that room with those folks
6: and so. we're looking forward to having you do the work on our behalf, thank you so much Governor's Council member uh, Governor Council-er or <laughs> Tara Jacobs thank you for joining us today, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again and absolutely,
14: I look forward to that and thank you for having me on today I always enjoy chatting with you both
1: our pleasure yeah We'll be right back. It's Salman Hamid's Universe right after this.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Following the end of this semester, all community colleges in Massachusetts will no longer require students enrolling to have the COVID-19 vaccine. The Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges, which represents all 15 community colleges in the state, recently made the decision based on several factors, including the end of the national and public health COVID-19 emergencies. The COVID-19 vaccine has been mandatory in all community colleges in the state since January 2022. A Greenfield man is under arrest for allegedly pulling a gun on a person at Stop and Shop in Greenfield yesterday afternoon. 39-year-old Luis Marin was arrested by Greenfield police around 2 p.m. No shots were fired and the incident is still under investigation. Marin was arraigned in Greenfield District Court today. Belize Auto Group is purchasing Steve Lewis Subaru in Hadley. The select board approved the transfer of the Class 1 auto sales license, and the Subaru dealership will now fall under the Belize motor sales umbrella. Belize plans to expand the footprint of the property and construct a new modern facility on the site, according to the Gazette. The license allows 187 vehicles to be parked on site, subject to conditions set by the Planning Board, Conservation Commission, and Building Inspector. And the Blarney blowout is set for this weekend at UMass Amherst, students preparing for this year's unofficial pre-spring break St. Patrick's celebration. The tradition has a checkered history, with more than 70 people being arrested in 2014. UMass Amherst promised restrictions on parking and visitors on campus and mentioned plenty of alternative events.
8: For today, look for increasing clouds, highs 40 to 44. Tonight, snow in a wintry mix. It'll be breezy, overnight lows 28 to 32. And the outlook for Saturday, snow and a wintry mix tapering off in the afternoon. It'll be windy, highs in the mid-30s. I'm 22 New Storm Team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP.
11: Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West.
0: The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community.
10: Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen
0: anytime anywhere.
10: We'll see you this
0: and no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning.
13: Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. After consumer advocates complained that the cost of insulin used to manage diabetes had skyrocketed in recent years, a major drug company says it will slash the price it charges. Eli Lilly has announced it will cut insulin prices by 70% and cap patient out-of-pocket costs. Do you need a loan? 40% of consumers say they do. According to an exclusive study by Consumer Affairs, the vast majority said they would use the money to pay basic needs, with 32% of respondents saying they need the money just to pay bills. Nissan North America is recalling more than 700,000 recent model rogues and rogue sports that use a jackknife-style ignition key. The vehicle's jackknife key may collapse into a folded position while the vehicle is being driven, believe it or not that could shut off the engine. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com.
9: Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please
8: take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey,
4: Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along for a ride?
1: And this is our segment, our special time of month with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. I want to begin by bringing us back to a conversation we were having with Josh Silver, who is a very smart person who we have on our show regularly, who said he wanted to talk to us about UFOs and unidentified flying objects and unidentified aerial phenomenon and was making a case that... There are many of these in, in and about our planet today and have been for many years. And he cited a lot of uh, testimony and reports by responsible people that lend credence and credibility to these reports. I must say I'm very skeptical. And what Josh was saying reminded me of the Twilight Zone episode that I saw when I was a kid. And the spacecraft landed, and uh, humans were getting on the spacecraft to go back to uh, the, the planet wherever these aliens had come from. And uh, people were very enthusiastic about enthusiastic about going because they had been d- decoding of the book that they found that they had with them. The title of which was "To Serve Man," and they're all getting the human beings are getting on. The, and someone comes running out and saying, "Don't go! Don't go! It's a cookbook." And that was uh, that's that stayed with me. Um, <laughs> you know, 60 years later, I remember that. Maybe he's still he's in 65. the twilight yeah. zone. So that said, Salman Hamid, what do you make of responsible people? Uh, uh, Josh Silver is certainly not being the only one saying, hey, there's really something to this.
15: Uh, th- th- thank you, Bill. And and perhaps I can uh, update that Twilight Zone episode with a <laughs> Simpsons episode. Uh, which actually has the same thing where the aliens actually have that, and Lisa Simpson discovers the book, and uh, she says that it's a cookbook, and it turns out which was they were cooking it like you know for 40 humans. How to cook for 40 humans? So they were going to serve humans with
1: meat,
15: <laughs> <laughs> and they were very disappointed that humans thought that they were going to eat them. So and just they brought them back. But anyway, uh, no, I think. Uh, I think we have talked multiple times about it, and, and I would love to uh, come on the show with Josh uh, as well, that the issue is in the last couple of years, the way the story has been formulated and the way it has been presented. Uh, it has muddied up the waters quite a bit. And indeed, there are uh, congressional hearings also. There is uh, intelligence community is also looking into that. All of that stuff is there. The question is, do we have sufficient evidence to say what those things are, or if they are things? We don't as yet. And so, uh, again, we come back to the same thing over and over again, just because somebody is credible. And somebody could be a Nobel Prize winner, it could be Einstein, it could be an army of Einstein say, I saw something. That is not sufficient evidence to make a claim that those are spacecrafts from another civilization. Are those explainable? I don't know. What are those? I don't know. I think this is one of those things that for, if you are in the sciences, one of the things that you actually get quite comfortable with is saying we don't know, and that is okay until we have more evidence. But to say that it is something when we don't have sufficient evidence, I think that's where the problem lies and people are not lying, but we know that people can be mistaken. We know people can interpret things that are something else. So we know that happens, but do alien spacecrafts visit? Well, that's a very specific claim for which we don't yet have sufficient evidence. And,
6: and listen, Salman Hamid, this is Buzz. I totally get that. I know that there's a difference between a fact, something that we could verify, something we could refute, uh, and, a, and a belief. But there's a whole lot of things that you guys do, astronomers, astrophysicists. You, you have been telling us that the universe, uh, when it was built, when it was created, and all sorts of information that we have, which is extrapolated from small pieces of evidence which you piece together... Sometimes you add color to images, you do all sorts of stuff in order to come up with a a verification of a theory, which somebody offered. Why is this, what kind of evidence do you need to say that particular image is one which represents another civilization that came here? Uh,
15: So when we talk about, and that's a great point, like you know that we have not seen the Big Bang happen, but we can actually really say sort of like, you know, that, why uh, Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago. And one of the ways is very specific type of prediction. So for example, for the Big Bang, I mean, that's a crazy idea, which actually uh, people thought that universe, in fact, uh, about a hundred years ago, people used to think that the universe was static. Universe is not even moving. And it was a big discovery when found out that the galaxies are moving away from each other and the universe is expanding. And out of that came this idea that, well, maybe it had a beginning. And there was a vigorous debate about it. But one of the predictions of the Big Bang was, if Big Bang is true, if Big Bang happened, then there would be a background light everywhere, a really temperature. There would be a background sort of like glow, uh, where uh, this glow comes from when the universe was only uh, 300,000 years old. Now, that's a crazy prediction. Right? But the people who worked on the Big Bang model said, if the Big Bang model, if the Big Bang happened, then that glow should exist. And not just that, they said, but that glow everywhere in the universe would be around, close to, around five degrees Kelvin today. Now, they didn't know we had it. We didn't know that it it, it is around. But they said, that's what Big Bang models tell us. And lo and behold, in 1965, some other astronomers found a background radiation or background temperature of three degrees kelvin that was a stunning confirmation of a very specific prediction the only way that prediction came out was if the universe started with a big bang and at a particular time
1: okay so let me I, I want to interrupt i want a remedial yep. question here my hand is up in the back of the class okay <laughs> yes thank you buzz eisenberg professor salman hamid in a really succinct way, what is the big Bang
15: uh, well, Succinct uh, being
1: the operative word here
15: <laughs> okay I mean big Bang is basically a model that talks about how our universe that we can how our universe started and uh, and uh, is there something before that that all gets into all kinds of things but basically how our universe started and what we talk about it is that everything in the universe about 13 and a half billion years ago, was much more closer together. And there were no galaxies. There were no stars. There was sort of like, you know, uh, first atoms and first molecules formed uh, after that. So Big Bang, in that context, very succinctly, is the beginning of the expansion of the universe.
6: But I just want to circle back, because the Big Bang, obviously, it's it's a huge conversation. And I, I was only raising it because my question to you is, what evidence, short of ET coming and touching his lit up index finger on your head, what kind of evidence will you need in order to say, yes, that is from a different, that's an extraterrestrial? vehicle or entity or whatever? What kind of evidence do you look for, Professor?
15: So that's a great uh, question. By the way, I'm at the, uh, right now, I'm at the AAAS, the American Association of Advancement of Sciences. I'm at at its annual meeting. And in an hour, I'm going to a panel where they're going to talk about how to talk about the discovery of the first extraterrestrial life. I'm not talking about technology. So actually, there is a panel on that, like, how you know, how how should people, how will people talk about it and things like that, right? So that's a big question. So we we don't even have an evidence for any microbe from elsewhere, right? So how do we know about an alien spaceship of alien technology? What kind of evidence is going to be? First question, answer is, well, I don't know, because we don't have any way of knowing what other technology or other civilization, if they exist, is going to look like. But on the other hand, if, say, for example, a spacecraft lands out in front um, of, uh, sort of like, you know, in Northampton, I think we can tell, like, you know, that this is an alien spacecraft because it is not anything like we have. Now, that type of, like, spacecraft being there, uh, that would be a good thing, clear, Pictures, for example, that would be great, too. But so far, what we have are these things that kind of maybe look like, and then there is an interpretation that, well, they're square, they're going this fast, and all of that stuff. Well, we don't know, because those are the way we are interpreting things in the sky. And we are interpreting those things to be objects. Because, like in some of those things, people say, oh, well, they didn't have a propulsion system. Well, if there is a droplet that's going up and down, sort of like, you know, that's much closer to you and you don't know how far away things are, it would look like it is going very fast without a propulsion system. But so, so all I'm trying to say is so far, all of this visual evidence that is there, there are those are not clear enough to even say anything. Uh, and that's a huge. And so we can still say we don't know what it is. It is puzzling. Why are people seeing that? I think those questions are all valid. The problem comes in jumping from we don't know what this is to these are spacecrafts from another civilization because for that, we need more than, oh, I see this triangle-like thing that is moving fast because we don't know how fast it's moving because we don't know its distances because they are up in the sky. We don't have any reference frames on how to think about these things. That's the problem we yeah. have. And, of course, if there is an artifact, and in the original, I know Bill is going to roll his eyes now, in the original New York Times story in 2017 that started all of this, they had made a very specific claim that artifacts had been recovered. Which was, they, which was wrong. The,
1: which, which turns which, out to and, be wrong.
15: Exactly. And, and, in fact, there was a quote in that New York Times article where one guy said, these articles are like as if we are dealing with those as if uh, we uh, as if uh, Leonardo da Vinci would have been given a garage opener.
6: But you so, did make an I accurate like, you made an accurate this, prediction because Bill Newman did roll his eyes. That's
15: exactly right. But that is the thing. So that I thought that was amazing because that, now we are talking about something. That's why it was really something different. As it turns out, that was a false claim. And people have forgotten about that. That particular story had a really faulty premise. We have forgotten about all of that, and we are now focusing just on uh, the like you know that we see things. Why aren't we following up on that? Why did that turn out to be wrong? And why were those people who made those specific claims about this garage opener going to Da Vinci? (laughs) (laughs) We have to be very doubtful about other claims too. Sounds. That's the link.
1: Salman, I need to run now and make my sign. I know this will be highly controversial. I need to make my sign. Alien spacecraft, welcome here. I'm going to put it outside the studio because we want to have that breaking news. We're going to- but, but can you tell the, the parking attendants not to give a ticket if it lands in Northampton?
11: <laughs> we'll be right back because I, I want to find
1: out from Professor what time it is on the moon, which we'll do right after this.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan? That's probably a good idea, too. Not Hit the ice all season long, right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP.
5: The sap is running. Local hero sugar houses are stoking the fire and boiling that one and only New England delight, maple syrup.
11: Visit the scenic hills of Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Tour Maple Corner Sugar House to see the production of maple syrup. On the weekends, the griddle at Maple Corner Farm is cooking up pancakes, French toast, breakfast sandwiches, bacon, sausage, and eggs. Maple Corner Farm in Granville. Breakfast on the weekends
7: and take home some Maple Corner Farm syrup. Visit the North Hadley Sugar Shack. Watch sap boil and bring your appetite it's the north hadley sugar shack's 28th annual sugar and breakfast season serving fridays saturdays and sundays seven to one north hadley sugar shack their own pure maple syrup is available year round but the sugaring season is short and sweet don't miss it go to north hadley this weekend Step into the season,
5: maple sugaring season. Visit a Local Hero Sugar Shack. For a directory and map showing the Local Hero Shacks, go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org.
4: Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you, better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money, financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So, whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a hug coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit hugyourmoney.com.
8: Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. Northamptonprevents.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: And we continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. Professor, I was reading this week, like day before yesterday, maybe yesterday, about a controversy about what time it is on the moon. Something I didn't know was on my list of things to worry about, but now it is. So what time is it on the moon and who gets to decide? And why is it important? Not only
15: only a lunatic would ask that question. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. I had,
15: oh, I, okay. Uh, sorry, I thought about it. Like, you know, uh, um, yeah, so that's a really fascinating uh, issue uh, that um, we have time on Earth. And as you know, uh, time is actually very tricky. And here also, standardizing it has been a big problem right? I mean, so today we do have a universal time, uh, which is, uh, in fact, uh, kept in France. Uh, there is a bureau over there uh, that actually maintains this standard ticking of the time on Earth, and everybody has agreed to synchronize it with them. Now, the problem is that our uh, satellites and other, our measuring instruments are so precise, they work. They need that kind of precision. That you need to have time measured to be accurate to billionths of a second. Right. So slight variation can also cause problems. But here on Earth, we have all agreed that that French bureau that is keeping time, and we are all sort of like you know synchronizing it with that.
1: Is so that the need, same thing? I mean, is that the same thing as yeah. Greenwich Mean Time? Is that what we're talking about?
15: Uh, no so so it's related to that but yeah so Greenwich mean time sort of like you know i mean i mean in some sense that uh, that was the standard so it is using that to maintain it at a higher accuracy in terms of how 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 the second is being taken. okay right so i mean like, you know, Greenwich mean time uh, is sort of like, you know is the time but then how closely how what is the measurement of time being kept that is being kept in france
1: okay now so, go on
15: please the problem is if you send a spacecraft to the moon so right now when you send spacecraft to the moon uh, you still require very accurate sort of like you know uh, time uh measurements between the spacecraft and the earth and the way they do that right now is if you have uh, sort of like you know, these deep space antennas uh they are on earth and then they are in space and on that spacecraft but the time would be ticking a little bit differently and so they actually have these uh, uh, synchrometers on the spacecraft whose their purpose is to synchronize it with the time here on Earth so that when they are maneuvering, when they are moving around, they are exactly at the right place. So which works? Because they are working with the Earth. That spacecraft has this uh, another clock that is synchronized with the Earth. The problem that we are going to find is uh, that as there are more and more spacecrafts Around, uh, orbiting around the moon, they will have to be talking to each other and sometimes without the earth. It's really that, crazy. I just want to interrupt. Sort of, Perf- of,
6: yeah. Professor, just to add, I, my understanding is the way we judge time is solar time, that is, it's in relation to the sun's motion. Wouldn't it be the same on the moon?
15: Uh, No, no. Uh, And so this is sort of like, you know, so on Earth, you also have, in fact, you actually have a slight difference in terms of how the time is ticking uh, between the satellites and on the the surface of the Earth. And that is because of Einstein's general theory of relativity, Uh because we are on Earth a little bit in the gravitational sort of like, you know, well, a little bit more than on orbit. So, the time goes a little uh slower slightly little slower on Earth compared to in the orbit, and you have to take into account those variations because we need to go within a billionth of a second so that's the challenge and so when you are orbiting around the moon, then first of all, you are in orbit, and secondly, uh, the time would also tick differently on the surface of the moon as well so if you need higher accuracy, which we do now, this is the reason why you need to figure out what standard time you are going to use on the moon. So in last November, a bunch of these space agencies actually came together and they actually decided that, yes, so right now they have decided that we do need to have a different standard of time for the moon, for the moon standard time. And they haven't figured out how it's going to take place, and who is going to be in charge of that. Because people also have to all agree, like the one on Earth, that the ones that we use, the French Bureau, that everybody has to agree, yes, we agree that this is the standard time. And so everybody has to agree that on the moon, there is going to be a standard time because that would be crucial for spacecrafts uh, talking to each other around in orbit. Uh, There is a plan for this gateway satellite system great gateway space station, basically, around the moon that NASA is building. Uh, and uh, there's a European system that is also going over there. Eventually, China is also planning on going over there. So they will have to communicate with each other. And in some cases, they will have to dock with each other and so on and so forth. And for all of that stuff, you need very accurate time.
1: I can't wait to send an email and- instead of saying we're going to talk at it- so and so, and I put ETT, which does not stand for ET, but for Eastern Time. We're now going to have it MST, Moon Standard Time. Moon standard gonna, and, I can and, hardly and of wait.
15: The bigger- and of course then we are going to go through sort of like no bring back the clocks for an hour and like, <laughs> day, daylight daylight sa- moon daylight saving time <laughs> moon daylight saving time even though the day lasts over there 29 and a half days and, and half. but but uh, but, uh, but the clock on the surface of the moon so that's another question.
1: Okay, it's a question on we're going to take up next time someone. We got to run. But listen, oh, thanks. okay. Thanks so All much. Right. We'll <laughs> pick this up next time. I love listening to that guy. <laughs>
0: It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to three, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP.